You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, so if you've been here over the last few months, you know we have been in the first couple of chapters of the book of Revelation, and we've been looking at these seven letters that Jesus writes to these seven churches in uh, what the Bible would refer to as Asia Minor. Uh, That's what was referred to then, and what we would look at now and call Turkey. And uh, what I want to do today is sort of put the car in reverse. Uh, We're going to back up to the first letter today, all the way back to uh, that first letter. It's this letter to the church in Ephesus. And uh, we covered this letter a few weeks ago, but I want to just reconsider it and look at one, uh, look at this uh, letter from just an angle that's a little bit different than we looked at it uh, from a couple of weeks ago. So the letter starts with commendation. You see it there in verses two and three. Jesus comes to the church and he has good things to say about it. In uh, verse two, he says, I know your works. I know your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be false. I I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and that you have not grown weary. So Jesus comes to this church with a lot of commendation, right? He commends them for being serious about doctrine. They care about theology. They care about uh, the Bible. They, They know the scriptures. They're keeping their nose down into the scriptures, so much so that when false teachers came, they were able to test their teaching, find that it was false, and call it false teaching. Right? This, is, this is the church in Ephesus, and Jesus commends them for that. Jesus wants his church to be serious about theology. Theology is important. Doctrine is important. And so he commends them for that. He also commends them because they are serious about holiness. Right, he says that in verse 2, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. Their, their right doctrine translated into right living. Uh, he says you cannot bear with evil. Right? They, they are laboring, they are toiling for Jesus. Uh, so they're, they're producing genuine fruit for Jesus. That, that's the church in Ephesus. Now, in Ephesus, there was some false teaching, and essentially the false teaching boiled down to this. Uh, It was a group of people who would look at the church and say, uh, you can have Jesus plus some pagan worship. Uh, You can have Jesus plus some sexual immorality. Uh, You can have Jesus plus whatever idol you want to sort of have. And the church in Ephesus is saying, no, you, you cannot do that. You cannot have Jesus plus your pet sin, whatever that sin is that you're kind of accommodating and just have kind of made room to live with. He's saying, no, that's not the way it works. No to that. It's not Jesus plus your pet sins. Uh, We said this a few weeks ago, but this church was a a place that was safe for sinners, but not safe for sin. And Jesus commends them for that. Jesus loves that about this church. He says, yes, job well done, church. And, And he also commends them for suffering well. They are suffering for Jesus' sake, and they're not giving up. They're they're not giving in. In verse 3, he says, I know you are enduring patiently, bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Ephesus was not an easy place for a Christian to be. It was not a kind city to Christians. Uh, Many followers of Jesus met their death in Ephesus. Uh, You you see this in Acts. In Acts 19, when revival breaks out in Ephesus, so does opposition. 
persecution, hard things also break out. Uh, but this church is faithful to Jesus. They didn't give up. They didn't give in. They are, they are enduring for Jesus's sake. Now, I look at that combination. I'm like, these are my people. I mean, they are serious about doctrine. Uh, they, they are serious about their lives, their lives looking like Jesus. They are suffering well for Jesus. Uh, they're not giving up. I look at that and I'm like, yes, I love these people. This is a church I would want to join. But then you get to verse four. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. What a shocking verse. You've just heard Jesus affirm their doctrinal fidelity, their personal holiness, their faithful endurance. But there was a problem. They had abandoned the love they had at first. Now, what is the insight that we're supposed to glean from a text like that? Uh, listen to Alexander Strzok. He wrote a book um, on essentially Christian love, and listen to how he describes this. He, he says it this way. What are we to learn from Revelation 2, verse 4, and must never forget? Here it is. It's that an individual or a church can teach sound doctrine, be faithful to the gospel, be morally upright, and work hard. I mean, all those things are great. I'm going to be doing all those things, yet, he says, be lacking love and therefore be displeasing to Christ. You can grow cold while outward religious performance still appears to be acceptable or even praiseworthy. Isn't that sobering to consider? So in a lot of ways, and this was the question that we dealt with a few weeks ago. This is the question of the passage. Have you lost your love? That, that's the question that this letter is really bringing to this church. Have you lost your love? Now, that question, though, begs another question. To answer that one, we first have to answer the question underneath that question. And the, the question that have you lost your love brings to mind for me is what love? Uh, love of what? Now look at verse four again. I just want you to notice what is there and what isn't there. Uh, look at verse four. Here's the charge. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Now I want you to notice there's no object to that love. It doesn't say the love you had of Jesus, the love you had of fill in the blank. It's just the love you had at first. It's, it's very open-ended. It's you have abandoned the love you had at first. So when preaching through that a few weeks ago, we applied that horizontally toward Jesus and asked that question, have you abandoned, have you lost, have you betrayed the love you, you had with Jesus at first? And that is a right application of the text. When you come across this text, you ought to think about that. You ought to think, gosh, have I, have I walked away from my love of Jesus? Have I left that love, lost that love? So that is a right application, but I think there's more ways to, to think about what this text is saying with that word love. So yes to that vertical application and yes to a horizontal application. We, we preached through this text a few years ago in a set of sermons on the church. And, uh, and we talked about this text in a different way. Rather than applying it primarily vertically, we applied it horizontally. Have, have you lost your love for one another? That's possible for a church to do. Now, all of those one another's in the scriptures, to bear one another's burdens, to love one another, to encourage one another, all of those one another's is that horizontal love within a church. 
And so a text like this should make us ask that question. Have we lost that love for one another in the context of our church? So, so that's a right way to apply it. But I think there's another way to apply it, and that's what I want to do with you today. Uh, just briefly, I, I want to apply it in that third way. Yes, it is getting at, have you lost your love of Jesus? Yes, it's getting at, have you lost your love for one another? But, but I think there's another problem that this church had. And, and here's the way I would des- describe the problem. This church lost their love of the lost. That's, that's another thing that had happened to this church. That they'd lost their love. They'd lost their love of the lost. They grew inward. They stopped thinking about a lost world out there, right? The reality of heaven and hell, like those are huge, massive truths, right? Those had just become abstract realities in their life. Insignificant realities, realities that just carried no weight in their life. As long as they were good in here, then it didn't matter what happened out there. That's what happened to this church. They lost their love of the lost. And I want to look at you and just as clearly as I can say this, Stonegate. This can happen to a church. A church can lose their love of the lost. And not only can it happen to a church, it often does happen to a church. Churches do lose their love for the lost. And so I just want to warn you of this. It can happen to us. We can lose our love for the lost. Years ago when I was in seminary, I was introduced to and periodically met up with um, a guy who became a friend. He was one of the strangest friends I had. If you knew him, you'd know why I said that. Uh, but the thing I loved about him is he was so zealous for the Lord. He, uh, every time I would meet with him, it's the latest story of some guy that got saved somewhere when he was sharing his faith. I mean, I just, I, I love that about him. He was so zealous for um, seeing people converted, seeing people meet Jesus, be rescued by Jesus. I love that. Uh, and then I didn't talk to him for a long time. And a few years ago, he called out of the blue and invited himself over to my house. I'm like, sure, come on over. So it was great. He came, we talked for a good while. And uh, right before he left, he looked at me and said, uh, he handed me a piece of, this piece of paper and said, would you, would you read this? Like right now out loud. I'm like, sure, I'm in, I'll, I'll do it. And here is what he had me read. On a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut, and there was only one boat, but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea. And with no thought for themselves, they went out day and night tirelessly searching for the lost. Many lives were saved by this wonderful little station, so much so that it became famous. Some of those who were saved and others, uh, various others in the surrounding areas wanted to associate and give their time and money uh, to the life-saving station. New boats were bought and new crews were trained. The little life-saving station grew. Some of the members then of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and so poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided at the first, as the first refuge of those saved from the sea. So they replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in an enlarged building. 
Now, the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members, and they redecorated it beautifully. Fewer members were now interested in going on life-saving missions, so they hired life, uh, lifeboat crews. All the while, the life-saving motif still prevailed in the club decoration, and there was even a symbolic life-saving boat in the meeting room. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, and half-drowned people. They were dirty, and they were sick, and the beautiful new club was wrecked. So the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the club where victims of shipwreck could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities. Those activities were just too unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. But some members insisted upon life-saving as the primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. But they were finally voted down and told that if they wanted to save the lives of all the people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. So they did. And as the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old. It evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was found. History continued to repeat itself, and today you will find a number of exclusive clubs along that shore. Shipwrecks are still frequent in those waters, but most of the people drown. That is a parable of what happens in the life of many churches. A church can lose its love of the lost. It happens all the time in Stonegate. That can happen to us. We can lose our love of the lost. What does it mean to be lost? Think about all the ways we classify people. Uh, we have uh, all sorts of sophisticated ways of doing that, right? It's male, it's female, it's Democrat, it's Republican, it's young, it's old, it's good, it's bad, it's rich, it's poor, it's black, it's white. It's, there's a lot of different ways. And in a lot of ways, this just undercuts, Jesus undercuts our whole sort of classification system. All of those ways are in the end superficial. There are only two categories that in the end are going to matter, lost or found. Those are the only two. And that word lost, it's, it's not our word, it's Jesus's word. In Luke 19, when Jesus is clarifying why he came, he says, I came to seek and save the what? The lost, right? It's a word that Jesus uses. And he's using that word as a picture to describe the human condition. This is what sin has done to us. It's put us in the category of lost. Because of our sin, we are lost. And if we remain lost, we will perish forever. That, that's what it means to be lost. It means that we are in the state that if we die, if we remain there, we will perish forever. Now that word perish in the Bible can mean a couple of different things. Sometimes you'll see that word perish used in a way to talk about physical death. This is like Mark 4. Uh, Jesus and his disciples are in a boat. The storm comes and the disciples are terrified. They wake Jesus up and they're like, Jesus, don't you care that we're going to perish? 
right? That's them saying, we're going to die here. Don't, don't you care about that? So it can be used in a physical sense. But it can also be used to talk about um, a spiritual or eternal reality, eternal death. You can think of it that way. That's what it means to perish. This is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Now just notice the contrast. On one side, you have everlasting life. I mean, we kind of all want that, don't we? That's like the good thing, everlasting life. And here's the contrast. On the other side of that, the opposite of everlasting life is perish. So in this way, to perish means everlasting death. It means to be cut off from the presence of God forever. That's the word perishing. It means that when a person dies, Apart from Jesus, in their lostness, they're going to spend forever in a real place called hell, created for real people who persist in their rebellion against God. That's, that's what it means to be lost, to perish. And I, just, I say that with just such a trembling heart. Could there be any more weighty reality in the universe than someone being lost, perishing? People who are perishing, people who are lost, have names. They live in our city. They live in your neighborhood. They go to work with you. They go to school with you. And part of what I'm hoping that the Lord might do for us today is just sort of wake us up out of the slumber and and to see that there there is nothing more important. There is no bigger dividing line between lost and found. If, if If we're found, it means that we are going to experience the affection and warmth and welcome of God forever. But but if we're lost, it means that we're going to experience the righteous wrath of God, the the displeasure of God forever. I mean, it just doesn't get any more weighty than that. And and what does it look like for us to love the lost? If if we're all saying a church can lose their love for the lost, what, what does it look like to love the lost. Well, let me just say two things. I think if you're asking, how do I know if I've got like a love for the lost in me? I think these, these are two questions you could ask yourself or two just observations you could make. Here's one way you know. Love aches. Love aches. When we love a person and they, uh, they are in a dangerous situation, And we know if something doesn't happen, if something doesn't change, they will be doomed. They're in that sort of a situation. Then then what love does is it begins to to ache for that person. It begins to bleed for that person, hurt for that person. Our heart is burdened for that person. And, And that's how we can know that we have a love for the lost. We can see their plight, what lostness means, what happens if they die in their lostness, and our heart is burdened by that. It bleeds for it, it aches for it, it hurts for it. So so you could ask yourself the question, do do I see an ache in my life for people who are far from the Lord? Tears, anguish. Love aches. And when love aches, love acts. I think that's the second grid you could apply. Love acts. When, when love sees someone in a dangerous situation, their heart begins to bleed and ache and be burdened for that person in that danger. But it doesn't just ache. Then it tries to resolve the problem. It tries to, to step into the issue. It, it tries to rescue them from danger. 
right? This is how we know we have a love for the lost. Not only does our heart ache for the lost, but it actually moves toward those people who are far from Jesus, praying for them, pleading with them, pursuing them, initiating conversations about Jesus, telling them the story of Jesus' redeeming grace. This is what love looks like. And if those things are not present, here's what it means. We have lost our love for the lost. Now, why is it important for a church to never lose their love for the lost? Why is that important? Well, church, this morning, you get to hear two stories to remind you of why it's important. You're gonna get to to hear a story and then actually two stories and one of these you're gonna get baptized this morning in this service. So let let this just rekindle a love for those people who are not in this room. Right, those people who are not here, but out there. And let's jump into the mission with Jesus to seek and save the, those people out there. So let this encourage you this morning. Why don't you bow with me? <clears throat> Father, we are grateful we have a God like you who seeks and saves the lost. Father, as we get to hear stories this morning of redeeming grace, oh God, would you, would you rekindle a deep love of people who are far from you? God, would you do that? God, would you revive that? Would you stir that in us today? And it's in the good name of Jesus that we ask it. Amen.